BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 122. New York on the grid. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are recording in the midst of a thunderstorm right Exciting. now. So if you hear the sound of someone hitting a strike at a bowling alley in the back. <laughs> um, that's it's just... unfortunately just a mid-April shower. It's, yes. So today on the podcast, we're going structural with a story about how Manhattan got its avenues and streets. We're talking about the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, which sounds kind of like a dry topic, especially that phrase, Commissioner's Plan. (laughs) So if you want, you can also call it the Grid Plan. It's also why it's sort of easier in Manhattan to kind of find your way around, especially above 14th Street, for instance, as opposed to walking around other boroughs or even other major cities just because of that numbered and lettered system. Yet it's so easy to take for granted, but the grid really is something that defines New York and helps us define where we are in the city, physically. Now, this is the 200th anniversary of when the plan was first unveiled in 1811 by a committee of three men. Since I haven't done any solo shows in a while, this will also be a little bit of a podcast within a podcast, because... One of the committee members, the commissioners, I will be focusing on a little bit more. It's a man that we've mentioned many times in prior podcasts. I I feel like he finally needs some do with a little bit more of a biography. So without further ado, let's hit the grid. Now, New York's grid plan technically, like there's an actual point where it actually starts. That would be, of course, First Street and First Avenue. Yes. We'll get to that in a second. But since we're drawing all the way back to the beginning, I assume you're going to take us to the very beginnings of New York history, as we often go here, to describe what New York streets looked like before the grid plan. Yes, indeed. We're rolling back to Dutch days, Greg, briefly. So stick with us, because we'll get to the grid here in a second. But when New York was the Dutch settlement of New Amsterdam back in, say, 1660s, there were really only a few streets south of today's Wall Street, with farms and plantations and ponds north of that. The commercial streets were really centered around the wharf, where all the action was happening. There were only at most, what, like a couple dozen little pathways? Oh, at most, 10, 20. 
Now, when the English took over, the city, of course, was growing, and in 1683, there was a charter by Governor Dongan, which divided up the city into six wards, all south of today's Maiden Lane. There was the Dock Ward, which was the richest, mostly French and English, the West Ward, the South Ward, the East Ward, North Ward, and Upper North Ward. Now, at this time, then, New York is basically, if you were to look at a map today, Everything sort of below the Brooklyn Bridge City Hall area. Right. Is, Maiden Lane is just a couple blocks north of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So this area was comprised of these six new districts. Yes. Now, early in the 1700s, the town was a bustling little place with merchants and traders and artisans, and almost everyone, remember, lived above their shops or the places of work. You didn't have tenements, apartment buildings, these types of things. They had houses. Exactly. But of course, in the 1700s, the city was pushing up, growing north of Maiden Lane. And remember that New York has a unique situation, because the city at the time is only the island of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. So it could only really grow in one direction. It couldn't spiral out in a circle. It started growing up the East River. There There were ponds that were being filled in and farms solding off and developed. For example, in 1734... Old Jacobus Roosevelt bought the land west of Peck Slip uh, that had been Beeman Swamp. He drained Mm -hmm. it, he filled it in, and he built his own streets. That was actually just south of of the Brooklyn Bridge area, I believe. It's just funny to think of all of this work being done to an area that we consider to be a very small small part of New York today. But it was big expansion Mm -hmm. for, for the colony town. All of this action is happening east of Broadway, but in 1769, the streets west of Broadway were also laid out. They weren't really as busy as those on the eastern side, however. I should insert right here that if you haven't guessed already, we're going to have a lot of directions and a lot of street <laughs> names. So, for instance, if you don't live in New York, and it might be helpful to like sort of glance at a map oh, um, yeah. because we will be throwing these sort of directional things at you. All right, so we're back to the 1700s here. In fact, to the fire of 1776, which destroyed a thousand um, homes in town and burned Broadway. So you can imagine that this was wreaking havoc with the city's streets. And the city was growing very quickly at this point. I mean, in 1783, there were 12,000 people in the city of New York. In 1790, there were 33,000. So mm-hmm. the, the population was almost tripling, which meant more streets. Now, this is the part of the story that really interests me. Mm-hmm. This is, of course, right after the Revolutionary War. And some of the people who had owned big parcels of land, because outside of the city walls were these giant farms with ponds and orchards and everything, some of the families that owned those were loyalists and lost their land after the Revolutionary War. They, they were permitted to return to New York City, but they lost their land. And notably among them, was the Delancey family. They had this huge tract of land. And we just talked about the Delanceys in our last podcast. Right. The Delancey's farm was around the area of Soho. Well, in fact, we're sitting right now on Delancey Farm territory. Oh, so the, it's the Lower East Side. Yes, well. it, it basically is today's Houseman Street down to Division Street, or say East Broadway, mm-hmm. from the East River all the way over to the Bowery. And about a mile of the East River property there. Now, all this land was owned by one single family. Now, that acreage may not be so impressive if you were plopped down in the middle of, say, Montana. But the fact that you are here in one of the busiest cities is sort of remarkable to think about. And to, and to think about it as being an actual, quote, farm. 
So in the 1780s, when the city took it over, they'd market into city blocks, sell off, you know, the waterfront for the highest price to the city's elite. But then the interior land was really sold off to merchants and attorneys, teachers, and middle-class landowners who occupied these new blocks uh, from the East River over to the Bowery south of Houston. Was there any rhyme or reason to how those streets were set up? Because, I mean, again, in the Lower East Side, for instance, a lot of them don't connect to any grid plan. So are they? Oh, but they do. They do? This is what's confusing. Mm -hmm. In fact, Delancey's land was set off as a grid. But there's another grid that's just south of Division Street. So up until this point, what you really have is a city where there are many grids, little many overlapping sometimes grids. So there is still today a grid in effect in the Lower East Side. It's very rigid, but it just changes when you get to Bowery. So for example, if you take Hester, you, you will walk straight until you get to Bowery and then it turns into another grid. So it's almost like a stack of ice trays, if you want to think about it. Small areas of grids where it's like five or six blocks in a sort of even row, but then they clash against another little tiny grid system. Yes, and they were aligned with different things. So the Delancey grid is aligned with the East River. South of Division, there's another grid that's aligned with Water Streets. So if you can imagine that, again, this is much easier if you're looking at a map or if you just know intimately these streets. Basically, within each of these sort of properties, there was a certain order, but when you took the whole city collectively as a whole, it looked a little bit disheveled. And the grid made sense. I mean, there was a grid system that was in place in Washington, D.C. Pierre L'Enfant had famously laid out uh, D.C. in a series of diagonals with a grid superimposed on top of it in his 1791 plan for the capital. But you do think of Washington, D.C., for instance, as, as a city of diagonal lines that go into plazas of different sure, shapes. Sure, but th- those diagonals are on top of a grid, Mm -hmm. of a rigid grid structure. And the grid goes way back to the Greeks, to Hippodamus of Miletus, who viewed the city city grid as the rationality of civilized life. Wow, all the way back to the Greeks. (laughs) What can I say? It beats Henry Hudson and the Habsburg. (laughs) But that brings us up to 1800. So we have a city with overlapping grids. That's growing. Post-war, this was a very fast-growing port city. I mean, it became America's most lucrative port city by the 1790s. So much money came to the city, not only because of the financial structure that was here. There were more banks in New York by this time than any other American city. But then, of course, what came along with banks, but then rich people. With this influx of wealth came the industries, like there was a growing importance on shipbuilding, for instance, and all these pre-industrial factories that would soon develop up and down the land with less importance on local farming. So the land itself, if you think of Manhattan of what it used to be in 1700, which was still mostly farmland, I mean, New York was just sort of like tucked down at the bottom of the island. Mm -hmm. Most of it was farms. By the 1800s, there were still farms there, but there was this growing need for industry, and most of this land would be used for completely different purposes within 50 years. By 1800, being that this was a brand new country on top of being a very wealthy city, uh, this was an era of very big ideas and far-reaching plans that people weren't just thinking of like, how are we going to live in this city over the next year? It's like, how is the city going to thrive over the next decade and century and hundreds of years afterwards? So we're also talking about the birth of urban planning. 
New York needed to be an orderly, attractive, and commanding city if it was going to lead America into this next century. You know, unlike many cities that had hundreds or even thousands of years of development before urban planners finally got to it, New Yorkers had an opportunity to actually cast the city in their own version of what they thought was beautiful. Also keep in mind, an orderly city would help with things like, say, these mass epidemics that happened, like the yellow fever epidemics that happened around this time. People really did believe that cramped and closed streets facilitated the spread of diseases, so they needed to change the city so to prevent these types of things happening. So in March of 1807, the city actually petitioned the state government to come up with a workable plan to create growth for the city because they saw far ahead into the future. They realized that this island of a finite length would eventually be filled with New Yorkers. Perhaps not quite as quickly as it ended up filling up. Exactly. The state, of course, had the money and the authority and We also had here in the city DeWitt Clinton, who had been mayor and would be mayor a couple more opportunities later. His influence on the state level also came into play here. So the Streets Commission was formed with a purpose to create, quote, regularity and order with public convenience and benefit, and in particular, to promote the health of the city. So three men were chosen to lead this commission, who have symbolic roots into New York's past and to New York's future. One of them is named Simeon DeWitt, who was actually the state surveyor at the time and had been a surveyor during the Revolutionary War for the Continental Army. The second man, John Rutherford, was a very highly respected lawyer. And actually, he was a huge landowner in New Jersey, mm-hmm. but, uh, but he was a very respected lawyer here. Now, the third member, someone who I want to give a little bit more focus here, is our old friend, Governor Morris. <laughs> um, now, we've talked about him, so we bring up his name so much, we have fun with his name, you know. He's the only governor we know. I feel like I need to stop and just give him a few minutes of a biography here. Oh, this is like the podcast a, This is the a podcast. podcast. I, and also, because we're talking, this is like, it's maps and everything. I want to give the podcast a little human touch here, because we, God knows, Governor Morris has touched a lot of humans. Ooh. Governor has very deep roots here in, in the New York area. He was born in 1752 to the, into the prestigious Morris family. They had a lavish farm and estate, and they, it was called Morrisania. Now, it was in today's South Bronx. There's even a neighborhood still with that name today, and most of the South Bronx was their property. So it's very funny to go there t- today and just think of it as this um, bucolic, you know, with rolling hills and cows and, and pigs and, and crops. Sure. I'll tell you where he gets his name. The governor was actually his mother's maiden name. Um, his mom was a second wife to the patriarch of the family, Louis Morris. So he was a half-brother. So, it, you know, it, he had the least claim to the estate. But over the years, by the time he was in his middle ages, he would acquire all of it and build a very lavish home here. Now, Goov, as they, uh, some of his close friends would call him, sure. I'm not kidding, uh, was a graduate of King's College. He became a lawyer during the 1770s. Now, in the Revolutionary War, you had mentioned earlier about how landowners were, some of them were Tories and were forced out after the war. Governor himself was caught between two sides, as some of his brothers were Tory sympathizers for the British. His mother even stayed behind during the war while he had to flee. He fled to other cities. But he was really caught in the fervor of the revolution and became a pivotal figure in the construction of the brand new government and worked behind the scenes very closely with all the major power players, including George Washington. Now, Governor himself was 
very aristocratic. He appreciated the finer things in life. He had very, very expensive tastes. You know, he was from a wealthy family, uh, so he was accustomed to a certain lifestyle. In many ways, we would you know call him a snob today, a bit of a fop, mm-hmm. um, and definitely a proponent of Republican-style government, You know, where those of a wealthier class represented those of a lower class. But he was also a favorite of the ladies, a bit of a Lothario, mm-hmm. a rake, as some he is often referred to as a rake. His diaries are laced with double entendres of like sexual adventures that he had. I mean, he was he was a ladies' man. Now, in 1780, allegedly there was a carriage accident uh, that required the amputation of his left leg, and he wore a wooden peg leg for much of his life. So here we are with a second instrumental father to New York City with a peg leg. With a peg leg. Believe the other it, being, of course, Peter Stuyvesant. Believe it or not. But there are rumors that he actually acquired that injury from leaping out of a window to escape a jealous husband who had caught him in flagrante mm. if, um, with the man's wife. That's just That was just a rumor. We don't know for sure. But given some of his... Uh, misadventures later in his life. Or mistress adventures. Mistress adventures. So bring the governor to the grid. Yes. The reason I'm backing up here, because I do think it's important to realize what he's bringing to the table as one of these sort of like secondary founding fathers. In 1787, as a member of the Constitutional Convention, he was one of the most outspoken members in the making of the American Constitution. I mean, 173 speeches. He was the most talkative member of the convention. He was a member of the Committee of Style. This was one of his first commissions. As the commissioner of style, he actually drafted the original wording of the Constitution. Most people know Thomas Jefferson is drafting the Declaration of Independence, but they don't realize that Governor Morris drafted most of the wording of the Constitution, including the phrase, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, is from his own pen. That's incredible and so underreported. Now, for the remainder of the century, he actually was in Paris. He moved there and eventually became the ambassador to Paris after Thomas Jefferson and was present for some of the early violent days of the French Revolution. Now, back in the United States in 1800, he was briefly a a senator for the state of New York. But by that time, he was settled back down at Morrisania. He got married at age 57, and as a sort of like a revered old member of all these great things that he'd done in his life, was chosen as one of the committee members to plan New York and its brand new system of streets. So that committee featuring Mr. Morris and the, uh, the other two gentlemen, John Rutherford and Simeon DeWitt, they actually came together and they hired a young surveyor, John Randall Jr., So John Randall Jr. and the other commissioners would get to work setting out on the town to survey the land and figure out how they were going to go about achieving this mission of staking out the city's new streets in a way that would promote health and also assist in the future development of the city. In fact, they were intending to stake off the streets at easy right angles as New York, quote, is to be composed principally of the habitations of men, and that straight-sided and right-angled houses are the most cheap to build and the most convenient to live in. There's almost something scientific uh, in the way that they approached this. Well, they were also approaching it, you know, looking at the flow of air, because they thought that a grid would offer them free and abundant circulation of air. Think of all those corners that the air could go around. And they were also anticipating, I think, that the city, even though it would grow 
northward, it was not going to really grow too much higher. So anyway, this, this group of surveyors then headed off out north of Houston Street, today's Houston Street, back then it was called North Street, and they started trekking through people's lands and farms and nosing around barns and such. Needless to say, the landowners were not very happy and did not greet them with flowers and candy. <laughs> because here were these guys snooping around on their property, trying to ram streets and avenues through their lands and their houses and, and their orchards. Now, this wasn't the actual, like, Mr. Morris and his peg leg, like, hobbling <laughs> no. through, or was it... This is Randall. He would leave... Oh, oh starting, Randall, gotcha. St- starting in 1808, Randall would head north from his, his home in southern Manhattan, head up past Bleecker Street to his office on Christopher Street. Oh, very northern In the northern village of office, Greenwich, right. mm-hmm. yes. I think he did have some help, though, as he would set off, because he took axes, he had to clear shrubs and such to even survey the land. He, right. He, so, he, assumedly, he had, like, assistance and things. I think he had, a, it's such a, he fun, had a posse. It's such a funny thing to think about just, like, going into land that's clearly people's houses and just saying, well, we're planning a great city. <laughs> where your bill, where your property is. Well, the next year in 1809, the state legislature gave him the right to, quote, cut trees and do other damage that was necessary for them to do this job. <laughs> so he had a mandate to head out there. No, people didn't, didn't want to see them at all, which is kind of funny. It's, it's sort of ironic because, of course, these same property owners who were furious and throwing, I saw some reports, throwing cabbage at the surveyors. Um, <laughs> and these same landowners would later benefit and become incredibly wealthy be- because of the skyrocketing values of their land that the grid would bring. Mm-hmm. And imagine also that the island of Manhattan at the time was not like the island today. It wasn't just sort of flat, maybe with a little slope down First Avenue. Oh, no. <laughs> it was very rugged terrain. There were some really high hills. There were some low valleys. So there were some surprising places that they had to trudge. They were also considering where the future business transaction and commerce would happen in the city. And they were anticipating that most of that activity would happen along the shorelines over on the Hudson or the East River. And for that reason, the avenues that they were planning would be a little bit narrower towards the water because those would be the more valuable spaces and they'd want to have more avenues and and more space for shops and for workshops and things. And they were anticipating that the spaces toward the center of the island would be cheaper and, and so those blocks could be longer. And it makes sense also. I mean, clearly they can't envision the railroad yet that would come in through the middle of Manhattan. They can only think of these in terms of the large ships bringing income in and out of the ports. Exactly. So finally, in March of 1811, they presented their plan, the plan which was comprised of three giant maps, eight feet long, showing the island of Manhattan with 11 main north-south avenues on it and 155 new cross streets that would start basically at Houston or North Street and head straight north with only one street, Broadway, that was cutting diagonally through the bottom of the plan. This plan would later be revised multiple times. It would head further north. There would end up being additional avenues. But this was the original grid. It was imposed on the city's topography, regardless of the island's physical topography, tumbling over houses and estates and farmlands, straight over hills and valleys and ponds. Old existing alleys and streets that were there, for the most part, would get tossed out. 
when they introduced the plan, there were 1,865 buildings north of Houston. 721 of them would have to be destroyed because wow. of this plan. Because they were just in areas that were... Would, they were in the way. Would, they were in the way? Okay. All right, so let me get this straight, because it sounds just a little bit too simple. Like, I'm just trying to pretend that I don't know what Manhattan looks like. Sure. So above Houston Street, we're going to take just take everything below that and just forget about it, right? right? It's settled. Okay. It's, it's, it's already settled, yeah. right. 11 avenues and 155 streets. So it's a big piece of graph paper mm-hmm. creating all of these different bl- squares, rectangles, I guess, that comprise the city blocks. Of course, Manhattan is not shaped like a gigantic rectangle. So, no. of course, it's going around the actual shape of the island. Right. It's not a perfect rectangle. The avenues are lined up to be parallel to the Hudson, not to the East River. Mm-hmm. They start with First Avenue over by the East River. And these north-south avenues then continue west to 11th Avenue, although there would be bits of 12th Avenue up north. Now, East of First Avenue, there are also four avenues, A, B, C, and D, which can be found in the southernmost section of this grid in today's East Village. Now, those those lettered avenues, Avenue A, B, C, and D, I assume that those exist because they're not avenues that are able to go all the way up the island because they're that little nub of the island? Exactly. Although Avenue A does appear again as an avenue east of First Avenue, although over the years, Avenue A has changed its name. It has become Sutton Place in Midtown, York Avenue in the Upper East Side, and Pleasant Avenue up in Harlem. And of course, it's changed its name based on the wealth that happens to move into those (laughs) neighborhoods, because certainly Sutton Place has a different feel than Avenue A. It does. Now, those streets, perpendicular to the avenues, would climb up to 155th Street. That's about seven and a half or eight miles of streets, and their numbers would divide east and west at Fifth Avenue. And to this day, that's how the the addresses are numbered. That's true. Now, Greg, do you really want to get into the (laughs) nitty-gritty? Gritty? Well, I, I I did have a question. I mean, that's that seems very uniform, up and down, left and right. Not a lot of character so far. That is correct. It is very uniform. In fact, right down to the width of the streets themselves. For example, the avenues were set to be 100 feet wide. That is, if you measured from one side of Fifth Avenue to the other. Mm-hmm. While the streets are 60 feet from one side, say, of 13th Street to to the other. There's also 922 feet between the avenues in the center of the island, although those get closer, as we mentioned before, at the edges. That's just so exact. Just 922? Yes, in the center. I mean, that's completely not regarding the actual, like, hills that might be taking up land. I mean, it's incredible. They just literally were going to wipe everything out. It's going to be exactly this length. And 15 streets would be permitted to break the grid as well. So there would be 15 special streets streets that would be permitted to be 100 feet across, just like the avenues. I wonder if you can name those. (laughs) And those today are are quite obvious, because for the most part, these are the streets that have two-way traffic on them today. They are 14th, 23rd, 34th, 42nd, 57th, 
Seventy second, seventy ninth, eighty six, ninety six, one hundred six, one sixteen, one twenty five, one thirty five, one forty five, and one fifty five. So those are the arteries of the city. I never, I never realized that those at this time, two hundred years ago, that those were planned to be to be that important to the area, to sort of be backbones to the whole structure of the grid. Right, and they were put in this plan in this map that was introduced in eighteen eleven. But a map is not a street. <laughs> so how did they actually enact this plan? I mean, it's how do you even begin well, carving he, up an island like this? He introduced the plan in 1811 and then spent the next 10 years actually traipsing all over the island, sticking these three-foot marble monuments along the streets and at intersections uh, from 1st Street all the way up to 155th Street. So he actually went around town with 1,500 monuments and stuck them in. This took a very long time, and you have to imagine, given the topography, given the hills and the valleys, he was going to great lengths to get up there in some very weird spots, but he was very precise, and these avenues needed to be straight, and the streets needed to be straight. So this is where the the axes come in. Like, there may be, like, a little, like, a forested area, but it's like, well, no, it has to be at this point because he's being very, he's a surveyor. He's being very precise. Right. This became a huge process to get these monuments in place. And how long did it take him? Ten years. Wow. And there were landowners who were, you know, not cooperative with this because they saw that there was this uh, avenue that was going to be plowed through their territory. So people were even removing the monuments. They were vandalizing. Mm, So, okay, that I think that makes sense. But there is one area above Houston that doesn't follow this grid, correct? Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems very exact pretty much everywhere, except then when you get over to the west side, then it's not that way. Right. And it's curious uh, that he exempted the village of Greenwich or Greenwich Village from uh, his plan. And I think that was because it was already settled. His offices, don't forget, were on Christopher Street. Maybe he just felt a certain tenderness to the old territory. In a minute, I will also describe a couple other examples of aberrations to the grid. So and, and maybe this was not a, maybe they were being a little fast and loose in reality. I recommend that people check out the blog to see an illustration of the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, because you can see this map, you can see the grid, and you will notice right away something else that's a glaring exception to this. <laughs> There was no Central Park included in the plan. Central Park? There were no parks. Well, there virtually. were a, there were a couple things, Greg. Central, Central uh, uncentral anywhere. Nothing. There, there was a parade ground that he had a military parade ground uh, between 23rd and 33rd Street, which was about 240 acres of, you know pleasant military drilling grounds. And there was also a place called the Public Market, which was a marketplace connected by a canal over by the East River around today's Tompkins Square Park. Mm-hmm. So those, in, in a sense, act like parks, but they're just public spaces. But the rest of the island is, in theory, in at this particular moment, parkless. I think the idea was that people could get plenty of recreation over on the riverfront because there was easy walking access to the river. And of course, because buildings were anticipated to be much smaller than today, there was more air. Imagine how how different New York would feel today if the buildings were two, three, maybe four floors everywhere. I mean, they legitimately did not think that New York needed park space. There's a quote from the plan, quote, 
Certainly the city of New York was destined to stand on the side of a small stream, such as the Seine or the Thames. A great number of ample places might be needful, but those large arms of the sea which embrace Manhattan Island render its situation in regards to health and pleasure, as well as to the convenience of commerce, particularly felicitous. So they yeah, really- much better stated than what I just warbled through. Why didn't you, why didn't you say that earlier? Well, I mean, who was but- that? That's directly from the original commissioner's report in 1811, I do believe. And maybe Mr. Morris wrote that, too, as well as the Constitution. It well, does sound like goof. <laughs> but just the fact that they thought that the Hudson and the East River was, that's enough. The idea of parks hadn't quite formed. So even with this grid in place, there were plenty of landowners who held a certain sway over the committee planning. Some of them are, of course, small farmers, small landowners that maybe didn't have the pull. But some of them were actually wealthier landowners with larger tracts of land. And they actually could have a say in what was going on. You know, in practice, carving this land up, it just, it really, it couldn't be handled in this uniform manner that looking at the map would have led you to believe. Many of the larger landowners who actually preempted the commission's findings by selling off their property beforehand. This was the case, for instance, of the land that was originally owned and developed by Hendrik Hendrickson Kip, Mm. the original Dutch settler. And so the generations of families that the Kip family that lived on this area, they owned this large farm that was on 34th Street and 2nd Avenue and this area surrounding it. And just north of there, there was another large farm that was owned by Robert Murray who was an Irish merchant, Mm -hmm. and he purchased the land in 1753. You may remember his wife during our Revolutionary War podcast. The Uh, great legend says that his wife sort of delayed the British soldiers. serving tea, was it? Tea and, you know, and daughters came out. Yeah, as uh, as the Continental Army was able to escape out of Manhattan. You remember? So that's Robert Murray. So the Kip and the Murray estates, they start selling off their land. They have some control over this because they see this happening and they're also a little bit further north so they they have some time to sort of take control of this situation so did they get out of the grid they actually did not but what what they were able to do is they knew the grid was coming but because they could sell the land off themselves they, they could make contracts for the land so they could be used for very specific purposes for instance the descendants of murray sold off that land but it could only be used for residential purposes now keep in mind that you know they could have sold it off for factories and made a lot more money. That's what they wanted. So the rules were set down by these individual families and these individual states. The Kipps property, for instance, part of that was sold off. The waterfront was sold off to factories. Another part of it was sold to the city so that they could set up a brand new hospital by the name of Bellevue Hospital right mm-hmm. here at Kipps. These landowners, these are just an example of other landowners did the same thing throughout Manhattan. They could control their own fate in this particular case. You know, and the people who purchased this land, by that time, the land was so associated with the people who had once owned it, they would say, you know, we live on the old Murray's property, the the Murray's Hill property, or, you know, we live in Kipp's old land by the bay. Now, over the years, because of this, because of the way that they were able to control how the land was used, those areas now take on the names of those people as the actual neighborhoods, Murray Hill and Kipps Bay. So long after a hill or a bay stood Lived there, there, exactly. Now, not every estate owner was thrilled by this. Even further south of those two particular land holdings, you had the land that was owned by the descendants of Peter Stuyvesant, 
His farm was east of the Bowery and comprises much of what the East Village area is today. Now, if you think of the East Village, the East Village is very uniform to the grid, if most streets. Sure. But you may know one street that completely bucks the trend here. There's a tiny street called Stuyvesant Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenues, and it's a diagonal that cuts through these squares. It crosses 9th and into 10th. It's one of the most romantic streets it's, in New York. It's beautiful. It culminates there, in fact, at St. Mark's Church, where Peter Stuyvesant is buried. Right. The great-grandson of Peter, whose name was also Petrus Stuyvesant, he had constructed his own grid system on the land. Like you had discussed, Like all these landowners had their own way of dealing with their land, and often it was mini-grids. This little grid did not fit at all with the city's plan. In fact, there was a, a little village that had developed here called the Bowery Village. I mean, if you think about it, Greenwich Village, and then you have a Bowery Village. Mm-hmm. You know, it had its own farm. It was a very popular with vendors and markets, this area. It even had its own little newspaper here at the Bowery wow. Village. Stuyvesant Street was actually the street that led up to the house, to the big estate that was here. By 1811, Petrus Stuyvesant, the great-grandson, his son, also named Peter Gerard Stuyvesant. So there's, let's just say it's a Stuyvesant five. Peter okay. Stuyvesant five. He actually worked closely with Governor Morris and the commission in how they were going to lay this out through his land. It also helped that he happened to be married to the daughter of one of the commissioners, the daughter of John Rutherford. Oh, wow. So, you know, kids, you know, drop some ideas off at the dinner table. You know, many of the Bowery Village blocks were, in fact, demolished, but they got to keep this one street. And this is, in fact, where the family lived, even after the grid plan was was locked into place. So that's why we still have Stuyvesant Street today. There's one more little battle, and there's many of these throughout Manhattan, and, and would comprise dozens of little funny little anecdotal tales. But this one I thought was totally cute. On East 11th Street in the East Village, I don't know if you can picture this. East 11th. Uh, I don't know if you, when you do your walking around. Okay. Between Broadway and 4th Avenue. Now, this is where today's Grace Church is today. You know Absolutely. that Halloween, that big costume store, that Halloween oh, sure, store? Yeah. That area near Webster Hall. In fact, 11th Street does not go through that there is this one block where today it stops for, of course, the Grace Church complex that's there. But that was not there in 1811. Right. So how did they get away with it? It was another powerful family. It was the descendants of Henry Brevoort. You may see that his name yes, around this neighborhood a lot in apartment buildings and such. He actually successfully fended off the city for this one area. And why, you ask? Because he had the most wonderful apple trees in this area. He had a wonderful orchard. He just could not bear to have these beautiful apple trees cut down. And so he fought against the city and successfully got them to turn away right here at 11th Street. That seems incredible. I mean, given given how Randall was just plowing through cliffs and mountains and, and he gave up on some pretty apples? It's such a sort of legendary story of okay. 19th century New York history that in an 1883 edition of Harper's Magazine, someone had written a small poem in honor of Brevoort. And let me just quickly read this because it's a very cute poem. He fought all their maps, and he fought their reports, corporations, surveyors, commissioners, courts. He hired his lawyers, well-learned in the law, the plans and the statutes to fragments they tore. But before all was through, Mr. Brevoort expires, and calmly he sleeps at St. Mark's with his sires. 
But this of the Dutchman's good pluck, we can say, 11th Street's not opened through to this day. So true. <laughs> this was happening throughout the city. How is this generally perceived, yeah. though, sort of outside of just the outside of neighbors of New York? How was it generally considered? I would say the general consensus was negative. Hmm. I mean, was it just because it was too severe? Many were lamenting, you know, the sort of packed uniformity of it. It seemed to be created just for commerce, even though ostensibly it had been created for air circulation and health and well-being. But there were so many questions here. You know, why were there so many streets and so few avenues? Wouldn't more avenues have made traffic a little bit easier? Why were there no service entrants? Why, why did all of the traffic have to go down the same streets? Why was there a blatant disregard for topography? Why not work with it? Why not do interesting things with it? And, and critics were not quiet about it. Clement Clark Moore, who would later claim authorship of A Visit from St. Nicholas. Right, and the owner of the estate around the Chelsea neighborhood. In 1818, criticized the plan as, quote, these are men who would have cut down the seven hills of Rome. <laughs> Very dramatic. And they would have, yes, it's true. Perhaps, or they would have put streets through the seven hills. <laughs> but of course, Clement Clark Moore, what would he end up doing in the end? He would parcel up his property in Chelsea sell it off and make a fortune. Yeah, do ex exactly what these other men were doing. In fact, they wouldn't stick directly with the grid. As time progressed, there would be many aberrations, many things that they would find that, in fact, oh, that just doesn't work. For instance, Bloomingdale Road, this would be Broadway as it goes northward. It would be called Bloomingdale Road. Right. Originally, they were going to sort of erase it. I can't remember. Right. The it's not. Broadway's in the southern part of the commissioner's plan, but mm -hmm. then it just sort of disappears. And as they sort of executed this idea throughout the island, they actually realized that there was a benefit to having a sort of diagonal road. And as a result, Broadway is one of the most famous roads in America because it does cut through this grid and in a sort breaks of the grid, yeah. flamboyant fashion. Creating very interesting intersections at those larger streets we were talking about at before. Some of the most famous areas of New York are at those particular intersections. Now, some of these other little weird details, like that market in the East Village, for yes. instance, that didn't really last very long. It was slowly whittled down until it was entirely eliminated in 1824. So that really didn't last very long. As you mentioned today, Tompkins Square Park is there. That was part of the market area, but that's mm -hmm. all that really exists in terms of parkland. You can still buy some land. things in the park. You can. Yes, you can. Now, the Grand Parade Grounds, yes. uh, which was supposedly the biggest area, if you will, of Up around the, 23rd to the 32nd biggest open area, yeah. yes. That too was whittled down so that by the late 1820s, all that remained of that was a little place called Madison Square Park. Uh huh. Two avenues were inserted into the grid in the middle of the island. Ultimately, it was just seen as those blocks were too long because the avenues were too, right. had too much distance. In 1836, they inserted two, I would say, rather important avenues, <laughs> Madison and Lexington Avenues. They would be inserted between 3rd and 4th and 4th and 5th. And we should also mention that 4th Avenue itself would be renamed Park, Park Avenue. Park Avenue above 14th Street. Now, why ultimately people did not complain about this grid system is it created thousands of new real estate opportunities. In fact, the New York real estate 
world was created by this grid system because in a way it's a very egalitarian model of how to build a city like you aren't building that many areas that are more important than other areas i mean that's why it's it's fascinating that neighborhoods in new york today can become trendy right but the actual shape of the neighborhoods all look exactly the same right they all look exactly the same, although they have different proximities to, say, the river or to, say, that other big thing that wasn't in the original Of plan. course. So, I mean, the biggest change to the plan is, of course, the construction of Central Park, which was designed by the next major city planners, I would say, <laughs> Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox. Olmsted would, of course, would d- design something else that broke the grid system, which was Riverside Park, which would go up on the Upper West Side. These were much-needed deviations from the grid plan. Now, today, most of the grid plan does remain intact, and it allowed the city to act really grow so that much of the island was almost completely filled by the time of the consolidation of New York with the other boroughs in 1898. And with the 20th century, then, brought additional breakings of the grid with the Columbia campus, for example, breaking the grid from 114th up to 120th Street. And then in the 19-teens, Greenwich Village, to bring the story back to Greenwich Village, Mm -hmm. which was spared from the grid, was not spared of the extension of 7th Avenue, which had stopped previously at 11th Street. But in 1914, they drilled down past 11th Street to hook it up with Varick Street. This greatly aided the traffic flow, and it also allowed them to construct the IRT 7th Avenue line underneath it. So essentially, this is one example where the grid plan was actually, in later times applied as opposed right. to it was you know, going away from it on right. something that had been spared well that's kind of a mess because those streets are all at jagged edges with no rhyme or reason well walk down 7th avenue sometime and just look at what really that wrought upon the old greenwich village plan that's why you have so many interesting angles on those streets about 25 years later, 1942, Stuyvesant Town and then and Peter Cooper Village would be built from 42 to 47. Again, breaking up the grid between 14th and 23rd Streets and between 1st Avenue and Avenue C. Later on in 1959 and through the 60s, Lincoln Center would be developed uh, between 9th and 10th Avenue and between 60th and 66th Street. So the city was not averse to actually blocking off blocks and Robert Moses would continue to do this mm-hmm. with, with various housing projects. Well, you look at a map today of Manhattan, and it looks like a, it's a very complex array of streets and avenues. Be- because of all these aberrations, it makes it a lot more of an interesting and vibrant city. The original map for this commissioner's plan is considered the most important map that was ever assembled of New York or Manhattan. Today, I mean, modern city planners have actually plotted this far-reaching plan. The development of avenues for commercial growth and the streets for residential growth and the lack of alleys. In a lot of cities, it would be very difficult for major things like cleaning up the street, you know, garbage removal, those types of things. That's a lot easier to do in Manhattan. I mean, keep in mind, except for the traffic. (laughs) And you can have tra- and the noise and the smell. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, otherwise. yeah. But otherwise, if everything else worked exactly right, I feel like it's appropriate to bring up my favorite architectural critic, Ada Louise Huxtable, and what she has to say about the grid plan. She didn't one hundred percent love it, but she does say, "quote At the end, after being out of New York for six months, 
I'm so happy to get back to straight streets. And you get that wonderful straight line view of the sunsets and the sunrises. And that leads me to one final factoid about New York that is completely fascinating. And that is called the weird phenomena that is Manhattanhenge. A play on words is, of course, Stonehenge. It is this bizarre thing that happens twice a year. Where, because of the grid plan and because of how it was specifically designed, the sun lines up with the east and west streets twice a year and creates these extraordinary, beautiful, picturesque, bright sunsets. These are the most beautiful days in New York. Most people would... They are shocking. I never realize it's about to happen. And the next thing I know, I step outside and... There's the sun. Well, mark your calendar because it's March 28th. Like they come at the same time every year. It's March 28th and either July 12th and July 13th. And believe it or not, the same thing happens for the sunrise, but it happens during the winter time in December and in January. So another little fun little feature of the grid plan, not only making our lives easier as New Yorkers to get around, but in these few moments creating also a little bit of beauty. On our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, I'll have two or three of these maps looking at the grid plan. I'll also have a link to a couple other things, including New York Times had a wonderful thing that just ran, I believe, last month that was different pictures of the New York map sort of overlaid onto each other so you could see what changed throughout the decades. It's really fascinating. So we'll have that and some pictures. Speaking of maps and grids, if you'd like more about the early grid development, I recommend the book The Historical Atlas of New York City by Eric Homburger. It's a great book. It shows how New York grows over the different eras. The whole history of New York City, like as it is seen physically. Map by map. map by map. Well, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.